Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Warning signs. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. Father, we read in your word in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in the last days, perilous times will come. Dangerous times. Because men will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure. Lovers of money. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And Father, we see here in the book of Judges that all the way back even then we see those seeds being sown. Help us to realize that these days that we live in call for courage and consecration. God, may we see the warning signs around us and be prepared. May we be diligent, disciplined. May we be salt and light. And not like the culture. Lord, I pray that you would convict us this morning if there are any areas of our lives that we're beginning to turn aside from the anchor and the compass of your word. If we're beginning to do what we feel like doing and even designing a faith that is to our liking, may we see that as warning signs. And may we come to you on your terms that we might experience a fresh encounter with you. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Report, reports are that on the top of Silver Mountain, uh, Sulphur Mountain rather, in the Canadian Rockies, there is a scene up high on one of the peaks that is supposedly one of the most breathtaking scenes you would ever see in your life. Now on top of the mountain also there is a tea house and a small herd of mountain sheep. They've become very tame and they've taken to, to begging handouts from tourists. Therein lies the problem. They've developed a taste for junk food. The park wardens indicate that the sheep are starving to death on a diet of peanuts, potato chips, popcorn, hamburgers, and licorice. The herd has come to neglect its normal grass diet altogether. And consequently, the animals are losing weight. The females are no longer producing enough high-quality milk to nourish their little lambs. One of the park wardens talks about the tragedy of it all. He said, and I quote, Sheep develop a taste for this kind of junk. It's pathetic to see, he, he says, but, but there's really very little we can do about it. I wish people would realize their kindness really amounts to cruelty. Then he goes on to say, those sheep have actually become junk food junkies. Now folks, aren't we a lot like that? Spiritually speaking, society has become junk food junkies and it's killing us. Junk food may taste good initially, but it has no nutritional value and it spoils our appetite for real food. Now that's pretty much what we see going on here in Judges 17. There seems to be a great deal of agreement that the last five chapters of the book of, Ju uh, of Judges are, are not necessarily in any clear type of chronological order. These chapters are, are more like a summary of what all is wrong in the entire book and could fit in chronologically almost anywhere. The phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, every man did what was right in his own eyes is repeated twice in this section. And we see where that type of thinking has gotten the people of God. The book of Judges is filled with violence with idolatry, with immorality, and yet the people were not doing anything that they felt was wrong. They felt they were doing what was right in their eyes. Now the trouble is they had left behind the compass of God's word. Now again we see that in contemporary society today and so today I want us to look at the warning signs that we might be addicted to spiritual junk food. And we're going to see when we throw away the compass of God's word and serve God on our own terms and to our own liking, it has devastating consequences. Now today we're going to see three very disturbing scenarios where God's word has been cast aside. 
From the first six verses, I want you to notice with me, first of all this morning, self-made religion. Self-made religion. Now what a sad picture it is that begins chapter 17. We're immediately introduced to a man by the name of Micah. Now what a wonderful name Micah has. The, The name Micah literally means who is like the Lord. But we see a contradiction in this man's name because in reality he did very little that honored the Lord. He was a thief. He stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom who apparently lived with him. Now we know back during this time it was very common to have extended families under the same roof. Now you may have heard one of the latest mother-in-law jokes about a mother-in-law and a son-in-law who didn't exactly see eye to eye. And so the mother-in-law one day packed her bags and she moved out west to California. Well, while out west in California, she died. And so the funeral home director was calling the daughter to let her know, but he wanted to talk to the son-in-law so the son-in-law could break the news to his wife about her mother. And as they were hanging up the phone from this long-distance conversation, the funeral home director said, By the way, what do you want us to do with your mother-in-law? Would you like us to bury her or cremate her? And the son-in-law said, Take no chances, do both. Apparently extended families living together were quite common back then. Micah stole from his mother. He took a huge sum of silver. Now folks, to understand what a huge sum of silver it was, all you would need to do is look down to verse 10. In verse 10, Micah hires a Levite and he's going to pay him 10 pieces of silver a year. And so 1,100 pieces of silver would have been a huge amount. Now evidently he didn't return the silver out of conviction or repentance, but rather out of superstition. He heard his mother utter a curse and he was afraid that that curse would come true in his own life if he didn't return the silver. And so he does so and she blesses him for returning the silver. And then look at what she does in verse 4. It says, so when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. Now what is so strange about all this is that in chapter 17 we have all this talk about God and yet there is dishonesty. There is superstition and there is idol worship blended in with it all. I'm here to tell you this was a very messed up and confused family. They've broken just about all of the Ten Commandments. We're told to honor our parents. He stole from his mother. We're told not to covet but that's exactly what led him to steal And he stole, and that's against one of the commandments. And then the first two commandments talk about honoring God and not having any type of idols or a graven image. And so again, here's a family that's broken about seven out of the ten commandments. They are a confused family. 
It reminds me a lot of the children of Israel when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness and they had arrived at Mount Horeb. And you'll recall what happened there. Moses is up on top of Mount Horeb receiving the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there receiving the Ten Commandments, the children of Israel are down there in the valley and they're setting up a golden calf and they're worshiping a golden calf. I mean, how much more confused can you get than that? And that's what we see going on here in this family. Micah is right in there with his mother. He sets up a shrine and an ephod and idols and he names his own way to worship and his own place to worship. But Deuteronomy had established that the tabernacle was to be the place where the people of God were to worship. And then in verse 5, Micah consecrates one of his sons to be the priest. Now only the sons of Aaron were to be priests. And if anybody tried to be a priest other than one of the sons of Aaron, he was to be executed. But here's uh, here's Micah setting up one of his sons to be the priest. And then on top of that, beginning with the scenario in verse 7, we find a young Levite. Micah hires him. Again, he's setting up his own priesthood. Micah clearly thinks that he is worshiping God and yet he is dishonoring God as to how God said his people were to worship him. Ladies and gentlemen, this is nothing short of self-made, self-styled religion that we have going on here in these first six verses. And isn't that a lot of, like a lot of people today? Oh, they'll take parts of the Bible that they like and other parts of the Bible that they don't like, they'll simply dismiss or they'll change. We see this self-styled religion going on all around us today. For example, maybe you have literally heard somebody say, well, my God is a loving God. My God would never judge Anybody. You ever heard that? I have. My God would never judge anybody. Oh, really? Well, yes, He's a loving God. But He's also a holy God. The Bible says in the New Testament that our God is a consuming fire and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in the book of Exodus, God says, I will by no means acquit the guilty. And yet people still say, my God's a loving God. He would never judge anybody. Well, how does that match up with Scripture? Well, back in the days of Korah's rebellion in the book of Numbers, when Korah and his crowd rebelled against Moses, you'll remember what happened. God judged them. The Bible says that God opened up the ground and swallowed them. How about that for judgment? Somebody says, well, that was Old Testament. Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says everything that happened to him in the Old Testament happened as examples to us. And let's come to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation 20, that great white throne judgment scene. 
Where God is seated upon his throne and all the nations are gathered before him. And we're told there that heaven and earth even fled away in fear. And the books were opened and if anybody was not found written, their name was not found written in the book of life, they were cast away into the lake of fire. Again, how about that for judgment? Now lest you think I'm exaggerating the problem today of self-styled, self-made religion that sets aside the Word of God and writes its own rules, let me give you two other examples. Rob Bell has a new book out. It came out last year. The title of the book is Love Wins. Basically, Bell points out that there is no hell to worry about, that in the end, love wins and everybody, somehow or another, ends up making it. And so he goes into universalism. He also downplays the whole thought of sacrifice and blood being shed. He says that we need to understand that's just a metaphor and we shouldn't read too much into blood in modern times. Now folks, here's a man who pastors a huge mega church up in Michigan. He's a tremendous communicator. In fact, he's one of the finest communicators you would ever find in church life today. He is a master at communication and he has become a leader in this whole emergent church movement. He's having a tremendous influence on young pastors today. There are about 50,000 that follow him weekly through social media. But he teaches heresy and people love it. And recently another minister who's heard every week on TV who now pastors one of the largest churches in America was being interviewed on TV and when asked about sin he said to the interviewer Oh, I don't preach on sin. I don't talk about that. People already feel bad enough as it is. Well, if you don't ever mention sin, then why would anybody ever think they need a Savior? If there is no hell and no sin, then why was there a Calvary? If there's nothing to save us from, then why did Jesus have to die? If Jesus only came to give you your best life yet, then why didn't he just come as a philosopher to talk about a new way of living? Folks, my point is that people today are a lot like Micah. They'll take a little bit of the Bible here, a little bit of the Bible there. They'll just take and grab what they like. They'll mix in their own thing here and there. And what is that? It's nothing short of modern day idolatry. One of the latest trends... Now I want to spend a little bit of time here because I I don't know if you know how prevalent this is becoming. One of the latest trends is to say if Jesus did not directly teach on a subject matter in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, then you really don't even need to worry about it. Never mind that the subject may show up somewhere else in the Bible. If Jesus himself didn't address it, it's not important. And they narrow it down even more than that. They take the words of Jesus that are encouraging. 
The words of Jesus that speak of love and of redemption and helping your fellow man. And they basically limit themselves to that. They certainly don't entertain the hard sayings of Jesus. And so essentially what they are doing is taking the whole canon of Scripture... 66 books of the Bible and they are narrowing down their canon of scripture to very few passages and verses. Now how about that for denying the unity of the Bible? Or the plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible. They just throw that out the window. In fact they would say that words and sentences and passages... Don't really mean that much anymore. What matters is simply the overarching theme of the Bible. And so if any passage or verse or chapter of the Bible doesn't seem to fit well with the overarching storyline of love and redemption, then just subjugate it. Now folks, none of that should surprise us. You see, that is exactly where a low view of the inspiration of the Word of God ultimately leads us. Now what's disturbing about this, I'm not talking about trends that are on the horizon and they're coming our way someday into the future. I'm talking about trends that are here in the church right here today. What are we doing? We're making God in our own image. Somebody well said God created man in his own image and today modern man is simply returning the favor. We're making God in our image. We may not like certain images of God we see in the Bible and so we pick those attributes of God that we really like and we ignore the others. And it's being promoted all the time. People are playing the role of Micah. They're designing their own Christianity and they're ending up with something that I dare say the early church and the early apostles would not even recognize as Christianity. When we do that, we're idolaters. Idolatry paints a false image of God. Now folks, it's pretty enlightening that God didn't just say no idols to false gods. He even said no idols to me. You see, an idol reduces God down. You can't do that. What if I took a picture of Adolf Hitler, attached your name to it, and circulated that picture with your name on it around? You wouldn't appreciate it because it's not you. We tend not even to like old pictures of ourselves. When we pick a picture of ourselves, we want it to be the one that is most flattering to us and does the most justice to us. Well, folks, there's no picture or image of God that can do him justice. And so what Micah did was confused and it was wrong and it continues to be wrong today. Now secondly, I want you to see self-appointed service in verse 7, beginning in verse 7. Now back then it was bad enough for a layman like Micah to do his own thing. But here in these verses we even see a man who's supposed to be a shepherd doing his own thing too. 
Look at verse 8. There's all kinds of problems with verse 8. It says, And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. The man was a Levite. Levites were men who had the call of God upon their lives. They weren't supposed to be opportunists moving from place to place simply looking for a job. The Levites had been assigned 48 specific cities to dwell in. In fact, when you think about that, he shouldn't have even been in Bethlehem because Bethlehem was not one of those 48 assigned cities for the Levites. It's believed that he had become restless because where he was, the people of God were not supporting the tabernacle the way they were supposed to. And so they weren't, since they weren't supporting the tabernacle the way they were supposed to, he was moving on to greener pastures. Now, talking about giving. And by the way, let me commend you for your giving. You look at our budget lately and how we're over so far for the year surplus and all of our mission giving's been over, uh, way over our goals. You're to be commended for that. But do you realize, according to recent Pew studies, even evangelical believers who consider themselves conservative Bible-believing Christians are now giving to charitable causes and houses of worship at a lower rate than they gave even during the Great Depression. A lower rate. We're giving to charitable causes and places of worship now about 2.5%. It's about the same level at which people own and maintain their household pets. Disturbing. Well, we know that during this period of time in Israel's history, people were not supporting the tabernacle the way they'd been commanded to. And again, that's why some speculate this young Levite is on the move. But here was a man who appears to be unsatisfied with God's arrangements for his life. God had given him an area of service and had he lived faithfully within that sphere of his divine calling, the Lord would have provided for him and extended his area of ministry. But he seems to be a man who is only committed to self-promotion and self-betterment. One of Satan's lies is to get a Christian dissatisfied with his circumstances in his area of life and ministry. A minister might think, I ought to be better known. I ought to be in a bigger place. I ought to be paid more. I ought to be appreciated more. Laymen in the church can start thinking the same thing. They may not take a place of service in the church because they think in the back of their minds, oh, that, that would be beneath me. Or they leave a church because they think, everybody doesn't appreciate me enough. Anyway, here was a Levite who apparently was for sale. He was for sale. And what's even more disturbing about that is when you get into chapter 18 and we learn who he was. He was Moses' grandson. 
And boy, that proves right there that spirituality, uh, walking with God, can't just simply be passed down through a family line. Family bloodline is no guarantee in and of itself, right? You might be reading a translation of Scripture that talks about him being the grandson of Manasseh. But, but what's going on here in the older Hebrew manuscripts, they've changed one. Evidently, the scribes didn't really like the thought that this guy was connected with Moses. And so in that name, all you have to do is change one letter in the Hebrew and it goes from Moses to Manasseh. And so some translations connect him with Manasseh. But you look back in the Hebrew and he's actually the grandson not of Manasseh who came after in the time of the kings. But he's the grandson of Moses. And yet he's for sale. Folks, I'm not saying that God won't ever move a minister. I'm not saying that God won't ever move a, a layman in the church to a bigger field of service within that church. You take a man who faithfully serves as a deacon and guess what? God might, might make him the, the chairman of the deacons. God might grow a man or a woman's Sunday school class. God might move a minister who's faithful. Uh, Jesus in the parable of the talents, the guy who received five and was faithful with five got five more. The guy who was faithful with two got two more. God might extend your area of ministry, but what I'm saying is we'd better check our motives. Are we following God? Are we just out for self-promotion or something better for us? Self-made religion and self-appointed service not being satisfied with God's word and what God teaches and not being satisfied with where God has placed us in the body. Do we see that today? You better believe it. Dangerous scenarios that has consequences for the body of Christ. Men and women of God, both laymen and ministers, are to be shepherds of the flock, not mere hirelings. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Timothy, be instant in season and out of season. When it feels good, when it doesn't feel good. When it feels like the right time, when it doesn't feel the right time. You preach the word. Uh, you, you reprove and rebuke and encourage. You do what God's called you to do. Stand up in your class and say, thus saith the Lord, if it's in the word of God. If people don't like it, guess what? That's fine. Folks, not everybody's going to like us and that's okay. Jesus said, beware if all men speak well of you. If all men speak well of you, probably a pretty good indication you're not following Jesus Christ. Thirdly, what I want you to see from chapter 18 is a love for easy living. A love for easy living. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. 
Uh, for, for until then, no, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtael, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What's your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me. And I've become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of the Lord, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we're setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace, the journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we've seen the land. And behold, it's very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands. A place where there is no lack of anything that's in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtael and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim and they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and they came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the land of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites armed with their weapons of war stood by the entrance of the gate and the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I have left? How then do you ask me what's the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went on their way and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him he turned and went back to his home. 
But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. Folks, in chapter 18 we're introduced to the people of the tribe of Dan. Now verse 1 is a bit confusing at first because we know From Joshua 19 that Dan just like the other tribes was assigned a portion of the promised land. In fact their territory was between Ephraim and Judah stretching out toward the Mediterranean. But their territory was small and Judges 1 tells us that the Amorites drove them up into the hill country. And so we should probably interpret verse 1 that an inheritance to their liking had not been given to them. Plus to occupy their inheritance the way God wanted them to would mean that they would have to go out and fight against the Canaanites. And that would be very difficult to do. And so listen to me closely here. The tribe of Dan had two very clear choices. Choice number one, they could go to battle the way God had commanded them to against the Amorites, trusting God that God was going to lead them in military victory so that they could gain their inheritance. That was option number one that they should have picked. Door number two was they could go an easier way. They chose door number two, the easier way. They chose to move on. They find an easy place to capture where everybody's peaceful, everybody's unsuspecting. And so instead of digging in their hills and fighting the powerful Amorites for their land, they fell upon a group of people who couldn't defend themselves. They took their land. They renamed the place Dan. They chose the philosophy, what is yours, I'm going to take and it's going to become mine. They took the easy way out. Now not only did they take the easy way out, but they even established an altar and an idol at Dan. You remember what happened in 1 Kings and 2 Kings when the United Kingdom split, when Israel was split in two and became Israel the northern kingdom and Judah the southern kingdom. Remember that story? How Jeroboam became the leader of the northern kingdom and he led the the ten tribes up north and he, he was afraid that the people would end up going back down south to Jerusalem to worship at the temple and offer sacrifice. And if they did that, their hearts would go back with, Jeroboam, uh, with Rehoboam and the people of the southern kingdom. And so what Jeroboam decided to do up north was he put a, an altar and a golden calf at both Dan and at Bethel. And he told the people up north, don't go back down south, just stay up at either Dan or Bethel and worship God at one of these altars. So that's what they did. Folks, what I'm saying is, in the history of the tribe of Dan, you know what they liked? 
They liked easy living. What's the easiest way to do this God thing? The most convenient way for me to worship to my liking that won't cost me anything. Remember what David had said on one occasion? I'm not going to offer to God anything that won't cost. That's not a sacrifice to me. But the tribe of Dan, they loved easy living. Never mind that God said. You know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 said, If we're going to follow him, what have we got to do? We've got to deny ourselves and take up our what? Take up our cross and follow him. Folks, this Christianity business isn't supposed to be easy. The Great Commission, I mean, think of the missionaries. Think of the sacrifice involved in obeying the Great Commission. We've got missionaries who have laid down their very lives even in recent years. We've got some of our Southern Baptist missionaries in recent years. I'm not talking about decades ago. I'm talking about here in just the past couple of years. We've got IMB missionaries in difficult parts of the world who've laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. Jesus said we've got a cross to carry. Who said faith is supposed to be easy to our life? What do we want to do? We want to design everything. Boy, it's got to fit into my time schedule. It's got to be the way I want it. Serving the church? No, I'm not going to do that. I want to be, you know, I kind of want to be footloose and fancy free. If my family wants to take off on vacation, I don't want a Sunday school class to have to take care of. I don't want little babies in the nursery to have to take care of. I don't want to commit to anything. Oh, gimme, gimme, gimme. I love, I, I love what the church can offer to me and what I can get for Christianity. Don't ask me to contribute anything. Aren't we like that? Aren't we like that in modern day? Like the man, the family that's leaving church one day, and the mom and dad were complaining like crazy. Everything about the service, and the little boy spoke up in the back seat. Said, Dad, you got to admit, that's that's a pretty good show for that 25 cents you threw in the plates. (laughs) A cross to carry. What's a cross? An instrument of death. Denying yourself. Look at the issues we need to be addressing in church life today. We address those issues, and guess what? The world isn't going to like us. There's some issues right now. Look at this same-sex issue coming up in the state of North Carolina. Those who want to codify same-sex marriage and make it to where uh, two men or two women in the state of North Carolina uh, can, can get married and it'll be a marriage. And so they want us to go to the poll on May the 8th and vote against the amendment. I hope you'll go and vote for the amendment. The amendment says that the only legal, the only legal relationship marriage in the state of North Carolina is going to be between a man and a woman. The, the, the tribe of Dan just wanted it easy. The path of least resistance. 
And you know what's so phenomenal about that? Stay with me. Do you know in Old Testament history, the tribe of Dan never again factors into God's program of things? You realize that? You say, oh, that's Old Testament. Well, let's go to the New Testament. Revelation chapter 7. The, the Jews that come to Christ out of the tribulation. We're, we're right now in the times of the Gentiles, the 69th week of the book of Daniel. The times of the Gentiles. Paul says in Romans 9 through 11, in Romans 11, he talks about God is going to do something at the end of the 69th week, the end of the times of the Gentiles, God is going to do something to stir the Jew to jealousy. And so a massive number of Jews are going to come to saving faith in Christ. He says, we the Gentiles are the unnatural branch, the wild olive branch that's been grafted into the tree. And if God can do that, don't you think God can take those natural branches that were broken off and graft those natural branches back into the, uh, back into the olive tree? Sure he can do that. And he's going to do that. At the end of that 69th week, the end of the times of the Gentiles, we get into that 70th week of the book of Daniel. And you read that during that 70th week, the 144,000, the complete number out of each tribe, is going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you read those tribes. Guess who's not on the list? Dan is not on the list. They don't show up again in the Old Testament narrative. They don't show up in the New They wanted the easy way out, disobey God, convenient living, faith the way we want it, a God of our own making, our own design. They don't factor in anymore to God's program. It ought to be a warning sign to us today. Right? Self-made religion, self-appointed service, and a love for easy living. It ain't going to get us where we hope it'll get us. It'll bring judgment, not favor. I wonder if I'm speaking to anybody here today that already the, the anchor, the compass of God's word. You're beginning to do some of that. You know, oh, I'll take this. Not sure I believe that or like it. I'll take this portion. Mm, don't like that section. Is any of that going on in your life? I want to invite you this morning to come to God on His terms. Look to Christ and Christ alone. Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. Are there other areas in your life you're already beginning to make compromises? And you won't, hey, what's in it for me? You guilty of any of that? Maybe you need to be at the altar this morning and say, Oh God, break my heart for the things that you love. 
Give me your heart, your eyes, your ears.